series. We've been in a series here for a couple weeks. This is the last, uh, not message in the series, but the last installment for right now. Um, So you can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 as we ready ourselves for the reading of God's Word. But I've entitled this series, The Church Defined, and the reason is is because I think that, unfortunately, the church today in our culture has lost its definition. It's lost its understanding of what Christ has meant it to be. And if you lose that, we're in trouble. And so this is the fourth message, and we'll continue it probably later this year sometime, because as, as most of you know, Next week is an exciting week. We're starting a new book. Uh, Usually we teach through books of the Bible here, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But next week we're starting the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is a uh, letter by Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And I think you'll be very blessed as we go through these five chapters together, verse by verse, over the next several months and um, I'd, I'd encourage you to start reading the book this week, if you haven't already. Start reading it, and you can sit down. It's a letter. Actually, next week, we're going to read through the entire book, because I always like to do that with the shorter books, because it, it was meant to be read that way. And so uh, I encourage you to start reading through that, so you're familiar with the text as we begin next week. And then just one more thing, on Wednesday night, we start meeting again this coming week, and we're doing a series called People Reaching People, and it has to deal with evangelism. And so uh, I pray that uh, your hearts will be uh, equipped to reach out. Most of us need training as believers in the area of sharing our faith and really understanding how to do that effectively uh, in, the, in the, the, the area in which we live, especially the Bay Area. The Bay Area needs the Lord. Amen? I mean, and, and you know, for years I kind of complained to the Lord, why would you put me here in this place to pastor a conservative Bible-believing church? It's probably one of the hardest places in the country to, to do that. But you know what? Who else but us, right? I mean, we're light in the darkness here in this Bay Area, and we thank you uh, for enduring the, the Word of God and teaching and not being um, willing to compromise in this area and so we're going to be starting that on, on Wednesday night, people reaching people, and I may bring in a couple of guest um, speakers as well during that series, and so I, I'd encourage you to try to make it out for that. But as we turn to Matthew chapter 16, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word this morning as I look at verses 13 to 20 as we read it together. I'll read it, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, we thank you, and we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word this morning, and open our hearts 
Now to this teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up in a home uh, when I was a young person where every church or every Sunday we went to church. Every Sunday. Every Sunday morning. And uh, even though we weren't believers, we weren't Bible believers, we weren't uh, born-again believers in the biblical sense of the word, we were Roman Catholic. And every week we would either go Sunday morning usually but then they started having uh, folk services on Saturday night. Most of you remember that with a guitar. We thought that was cool. So we'd go Saturday night instead of Sunday morning. We got to sleep in. But we would go every week. And also, we had what we called catechism or, or Sunday school every Saturday morning. And uh, we did it without even thinking about it. We just went to church. It was Sunday. You went to church. And here, you know... Uh, in America, uh, going to church used to be what people did, what Christians did at least. If you're any kind of Christian in any sense of the word, you were in church on Sundays. That's how most of us grew up. But nowadays, unfortunately for many Christians, it seems that the church um, is not very important, frankly. I've read a claim that uh, a lot of born-again Christians think they're really committed to their local church if they're able to attend two or three times a month. That really says that they're committed. Uh, Many other Christians want nothing to do with the church, frankly. Uh, They find it irrelevant. They find it boring. How can you sit there for an hour and let some guy up there teach? Uh, Going to church for some people, messes up their much-needed weekend off. They need time away. They need to take a break. And so usually it defaults on Sunday. Um, And besides, they can get what they want spiritually online anyway or on the TV. Um, So there's no need for the local church. A lot of people have been wounded by the church, unfortunately. A lot of people were abused by the church. And so they want to avoid the church altogether. <laughs> um, their view of God and their view of the Heavenly Father may be their view of their own father, who maybe they had a toxic relationship with, who knows. And they think, who needs the church? What's the purpose of the church? Why do we have to go to church? And unfortunately, during this whole COVID mess for the last couple of years, the church seems to have become even more irrelevant in our culture. I mean, who would have thought that the government would actually have the means to cancel church? I mean, if I said that to you five years ago, you you would have said, you're nuts, Pastor. What do you mean the government's going to cancel church? They deemed it unessential. Go figure. But for others, the the church is kind of like a nice slice of pie, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice thing to add to your diet, but it's not essential. You wouldn't want to live on pie. So it's, it's just kind of a nice little thing you have once in a while to crave your, your sweet tooth. It's not the center of your life. Uh, you say, well, what is the center of their lives? Usually it's self-fulfillment, their own happiness. They're more concerned with their own desires, their own needs. And 
to the extent that the church helps them fulfill and be fulfilled as a person and be happy in their own lives, well, then they'll go. They'll attend if the church does that for them. Uh, Unfortunately, people today are looking for a church that will strive to meet all of their self-needs, their wants. That's what people are looking for. What what can you do for me? Um, But if the church doesn't deliver in those areas, if it doesn't give them what they want, what happens is they either stop going and uh, they, or they shop around for another church. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, looking for a bag of chips or something. What kind do you want today? Well, I want something a little salty, a little vinegar. Oh, I want some barbecue. I want, and they just go to different churches at a whim. So people are looking for, for churches who would meet their personal needs. And if they don't find one, either they just drop out or they move from church to church or they just drop out and give up altogether. Well, let me just say, um, if you're visiting here this morning, if you're looking for a church just to meet and cater to your self-needs or your self-interests, you know, I just want to save you some time. Look for another church because this is not the church for you. I'll just be real honest and real bold. Um, you might as well just keep on looking. We're not interested in catering to your self-interests or the self-interests of the congregation or the culture or anything else. We are interested in teaching the Word of God in an expository fashion that will help you grow in your personal Christian faith, in your personal relationship with Christ, so that you are edified as the body of Christ And you're able to fulfill the great commandment and serve the body and preach the gospel to those who are lost. Uh, The Apostle Paul gives us a great word for the purpose of the church. If you're wondering what's the purpose of the church, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to read this text for us because it it really dials down on what we believe as a Bible-believing church. Why do we have pastors? Why do we have um, elders? Why do we have teachers? Why do we have people serving the church? It's not to meet your needs in a personal sense, your wants. It tells us in verse 11, Ephesians 4, 11, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. So he's writing to Christians. And he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, and the shepherds and the teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, why is that important, Paul? He tells us in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. He's speaking spiritually tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
This is the purpose of the church. This is what Paul says. This is what God says to us. We don't have to invent the purpose of the church. You know, I often use this illustration. The church, I refer to it as as the, the hub on a bicycle wheel. If you look at a bicycle wheel, you have a hub in the middle. You have a tire on the outside, and it's all connected by those spokes. It used to be in our culture, especially here in America, that the church was the hub of a, of a community, of a society. Everything that happened in the community happened at the church. The church was the center of everything. And that wheel has many spokes, but it only has one hub. It's central to all the, the, the spokes on the, on the wheel and central to the tire itself. If you take away the hub from any wheel, the wheel can't operate properly. It doesn't function. Or if you take that hub, which is the center, and you try to make it one of the spokes on the wheel, it doesn't function properly. Why? Because the hub really is central to supporting the structure of the the wheel itself. And today, unfortunately, in our culture, we've tried to take the church, which is supposed to be the hub, central to everything, and we try to make it a single spoke, We try to make it a a single spoke on the wheel of life. Just something we check off once a week or every couple weeks. And see, when you you base that on, on Matthew 6, verse 33, where Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I said that that Christ and his church, his kingdom, would be the center. It should be the center of our lives in every way. Everything else should be governed by the center. And this is Christ's church. And so this morning I want to argue with you that Christ and his body, the church, is essential. Uh, It's not just nice. It's not just something you add to your life. For a Bible-believing Christian, it is essential. Christ and his church should be at the center of every Christian's life. It's not just one of the spokes on the wheel of life that helps life keep rolling along. It's the core. It's the center that should govern everything else. John Stott put it like this. He said, if the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? That's a wonderful statement. Well, this morning I want to look at three ways, three reasons why the church is essential, why it's important. And the church is important because Christ promised to build it. He loves his church and he gave his life for her and his church reveals him to the lost world. And so if you look at these Three reasons with me. You have an outline there. Uh, You know, when I I read in the scriptures that Christ promised to build his church, I remember reading that as a new believer, that Christ was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I thought, wow, this is a winning situation. This is something that I don't have to guess. Well, if I get involved in this venture, will it fail? (laughs) No, this is going to be successful. Because it's, it's Christ, the creator of the universe, that's behind it. And so I thought, if Christ promised to build his church, 
then you know what? End conclusion, it's going to be built, whether we like it or not. It's going to be built. And I thought, I want to be part of that process because I know we're going to win. I mean, it's not, you know, it was kind of fleshly when you think about it, but that's a, that's a good motivation. And if Christ loved the church enough to die for her, then I want to love the church. And if I want to love the church, then guess what? I got to serve the church. I want to do whatever I can for the church with all its warts, with all its weirdness, and with all the, the goofy people that are in churches. It doesn't matter because this is Christ's church. And I thought, you know what? The Lord really impressed that upon me. And, you know, that was almost 43 years ago. I gave my, my heart to the Lord. And, and it was almost immediate. I thought, you know what? I, I got I to serve the Lord. I was kind of on my way into criminology, got my degree in that area. But God, boy, he just moved me in a different direction. Well, the first point here, the church is important because Christ promised to build it. If you look there in Matthew 16, what we read, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, maybe one of the prophets. And then Jesus Christ asked one of the most crucial questions that any person can ever be asked in life. This is so key to understanding your faith. In verse 15, he says, but who do you say that I am? I don't care who these other people say that I am. Who do you say that I am? He personalized it. Do you understand that your eternal destiny hinges? It hinges on getting that question right. When you stand before God, he's not going to say, well, what church did you go to? What's the name of the church? Who was the pastor? How many times did you go? He's not going to say, oh, how much good works did you do? What did you do to to help people? No. He's going to say, what did you do with my son? What does he mean to you? Peter gave his well-known answer in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's interesting how Jesus replies there in verse 17. He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, guess what, Peter? You didn't figure this out on your own. Sometimes when people share their testimonies, you know, they talk about all the sin in their life and build up to the, you know, and then, and then finally I found God. Wrong. God's not lost. You don't have to find God, <laughs> right? He found you. <laughs> he knew where you were all along. And he saved you. We're just along for the ride, beloved. Yeah, we respond to the gospel affirmatively. That's our part. But he tells Peter, you know what? You didn't figure this out on your own, but it was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. And see, this kind of ties in with you know, our subject on Wednesday night coming up, evangelism. So many times we think that somehow to evangelize means to go out and, and we're going to convert people. We're going to do it. We're going to talk them into it. We're going to use all our fancy tracks and, and our slick little presentations. and We're going to make them say that sinner's prayer. Well, guess what? That doesn't work. 
That's not effective. It's God that saves the human soul. It's God that takes the blinders off their eyes. Yes, he uses us in the process. Yes, he uses tracts. He uses gospel presentations. He uses evangelists. But any man of God who has seen people come to Christ under their ministry would quickly tell you that it wasn't them. It was God doing a work in their hearts through the word of God. And so he says, my father revealed that to you. And he says, you are Peter. That means it's kind of a small rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, the church is important because it belongs to Christ. It, it doesn't belong to us. And, and we fall into that so many times, even when we invite people to church. Hey, do you want to come to my, what do we say, my church? Like it's mine. Like I, I have a, a, you know, I part of this, I own this place. No. No. It's Christ's church. It belongs to him. And when we begin to think that somehow we own the church, we go down the wrong road. We're in trouble. This means that this is not my church. It's not your church. No pastor can claim that any church is his. Whose church is it? It's Christ's church. And we all slip up. We all say that. You know, sometimes I'll even say, you know, yeah, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was, I was teaching our people on Wednesday night, or my people. It's like they're mine. No, they're not. But we have to remind ourselves that he bought the church with his blood, according to Acts twenty twenty eight, and it belongs exclusively to him. We don't have the opportunity to reinvent the church, to renegotiate the church and how it works. It's all given to us in the word of God. No one, no matter how influential, no matter how much money they have donated, no matter how long they've been in the church and their ancestors have been in the church, can rightly claim this is my church. Because it's not. This church belongs to Christ. Jesus Christ owns it. He only allows us to serve in it for his kingdom purposes. So it's his church. Secondly, the church is important because... It's built on the right understanding of the person of Christ. The right understanding of the person of Christ. So first of all, it belongs to Christ. But secondly, it's built on the right understanding of the person of Christ. Look at what Peter says in verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This, he just didn't come up with this. This was under direct revelation from God the Father. Christ means that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the anointed one. He's the one that was prophesied in over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 predict that the Messiah's suffering was going to be on a cross for the sacrifice of, of sinners. Psalm 2 and Daniel 7 proclaim him as the future ruler over the kingdoms on earth. Psalm 110 reveals him both to David's son and, to, and as David's Lord. In Zechariah 12.10, the Lord proclaims this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son 
and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That verse proclaims the deity, me, death, resurrection, future coming, in glory of the Messiah. And it resulted in a widespread conversion of Jewish people. And there's a lot of other astounding prophecies that we don't have time to go into this morning concerning Jesus as the Christ. But Peter's announcement that Jesus is the son of the living God really may have been a parallel way of saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He truly is. But it also reveals that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. The only way that David's son could at the same time be David's Lord is that he is the Lord God. When Jesus walked on the water, you remember in Matthew 14, verse 33, and he stilled the storm, and what did the disciples do? They worshipped him, it says. They worshipped him. And they said, you are certainly God's son. Because they were seeing miraculous things being done. Well, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus rebuke them for worshiping him? No. Any reverent Jew would have rebuked somebody worshiping another human being, but Jesus wasn't just another human being. In Acts 10, verse 25 and 26, when Peter, it says, when Peter, Peter entered, Cornelius met him and he fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Well, what did Peter do? Peter says, he lifted him up and said, stand up. I'm, I'm, I too am a man. You don't worship me. You only worship God. But we're told in Scripture that Jesus never did that. Thomas in John 20 even said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and have believed. Guess who that is? That's you and I. <laughs> we haven't seen the, the risen Lord but we believe, and we're going to be blessed as a result. He is God in human flesh. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, you, you know, when you get back to Matthew here, and he says, well, who? You might want to be, be wondering, who is this uh, rock that he's talking about? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, without going into it a whole lot, there's, there's three basic views. One view is that Peter is the rock. Jesus is saying, yeah, Peter, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. Well, there's a lot of problems with that view. That would be the view of the Roman Catholic Church in which I was raised. It views Peter as the first pope and claims that somehow there's a direct line of secession among all the popes down to the current pope. Problem with that is that's not what the text says. Um, secondly, some people say, "Well, it's Peter's confession that thou art the Christ. That's what is the rock." And a lot of people believe that. A lot of even Protestant scholars and early church fathers believe that. Um, but thirdly, I, I really believe this. The third view is that Christ is the rock. And, you know, that, that word Peter in that text, uh, it means stone. And then upon this rock, I think Christ was saying he is the bedrock, the foundation rock. 
the rock that he refers to in Matthew 7.25. Jesus alluded to himself as the rock on which everybody should build their life. In Matthew 21.42, he refers to himself as the stone which is the, the chief stone, the one that the builders rejected. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of purpose and understanding that Christ is the rock. And, and I think when you remove that, when you remove that understanding of, of why the church exists and upon which it's built, you fall into a lot of problems. But thirdly, under this first point, the church is important because it has authority to proclaim God's only way of salvation to the world that is under his judgment. It has the authority to preach the only gospel that we have. So the church is important not just because it belongs to Christ and not to us, and it's built upon the right understanding of who Jesus is in the first place, but it's also important that we have to have this gospel. And that's what he says there in verse 18, I will build my church. If Christ is going to build his church, I don't want to get in the way, frankly. You know, you can, you know, if you've been involved in church at all, you probably get emails, you get phone calls, you get all kinds of things about new church programs. So we guarantee you, if you use this program, your church will be busting at the seams. Everybody's got a new program for church growth. It's a whole, you know, uh, uh, section of Christianity today, the church growth movement. And they have all these ways that you can build your church. Well, you know what? Jesus said he's going to build his church. And so I just want to do it the way he wants us to do it. And it says, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overpower it. But what did he mean by that? Some argue that the gates do not represent an aggressive force. They symbolize death. Other people come up with other different things. But as I said before, I I really look at this as when he says the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. What's the purpose of the church? As the church of Christ, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, what? Go what? Out into all the world and teach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, he's with us always, until the very end. So he's unleashing the church on the world. This is the understanding. See, a lot of people read that and say, oh good, we're safe in the church. We can stay here in our little holy huddle, and and the gates of hell are not going to come in. The people from hell, they can't get in. The, The forces of darkness were in the church. That's, that's not what it's, that's true, by the way, but that's not what this is implying. This is implying, you know what? Even though this, this world is, is run amok with satanic and demonic power all over the place, that shouldn't cause our, our church doors to be closed. But we should be boldly bursting forth and going out into the darkness. Because it's not going to, the gates of hell will not prevail, will not overpower the church in its goal to reach a lost and dying world. And when you think about it, you know, you have atheistic communism. It, it, it seeks to eradicate Christianity. You have Islam spread over the entire world now. Uh, 
You have Hinduism, which is a very dominant faith. You have Buddhism. And yet Jesus prophesied the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then he says, and then the end will come. Guess what? I mean, with the communication technology we have today, the idea that the the kingdom of God, the gospel is being preached to the whole world is not a far cry. I could see back when they didn't have electricity and all that, they'd say, wow, that's never going to happen. I mean, now you can... I mean, you could be sitting in India watching this live stream. I mean, it's amazing. But he says, after that, the end will come. This present evil world will perish under God's judgment. Second Peter 3 tells us. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. So the church is important because Christ promised to build it and his promise will not fail. And when we commit ourselves to his church, we're committed to the only cause really that is promised to triumph. So it's a good thing to be focused, to be uh, focused in on the church. Secondly, the second point here, I think it's on the backside of your outline there. Um, The church is important because Christ loves her and gave himself for her. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives. And we, guys, we know this all too well. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So our, he's painting a picture of our relationship between a husband and a wife. And how tender and how intimate that is. He says that's the kind of relationship that Christ has with his church. To the point that he gave himself up for her. He goes on and he says in Ephesians 5.28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. But nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body, he says. See, the church is the bride of Christ. He loves the church. Then if I love the church, I must love his church. Or if I love Christ, I must love his church sacrificially. We have to be willing to sacrifice for the church. John Calvin said this, separation from the church is the denial of God and Christ. Wow. And referring to Ephesians 4 or 5, he says, Nor can any more atrocious crime be conceived than for us, by sacrilegious disloyalty, to violate the marriage that the only begotten Son of God deemed to contract with us. Loving Christ's church is important for us. You've probably heard the little saying, to dwell above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, (laughs) that's a different story, right? There's no perfect church. We're not a perfect church. There is no perfect church. Why? Because churches are made up of fallen human beings who are called sinners, saved by God's grace. And if you do find a perfect church, someone said, don't join it because you just messed it up. Because none of us are perfect. 
But if the church is Christ's bride, think of this with me, one flesh with him, and we love Christ, we must love, we must commit ourselves to the local church. And we have to learn to, to work through all the differences and, and the offenses that may happen. And we have to learn to do so in a biblical way. We must love the saints we know. And I'm so thankful to be part of a Bible-believing church that puts a great emphasis on the members caring for the members. I mean, you, you folks, a small church, but you know what? You care for each other. And it, it's wonderful to see that in living color being lived out each week. You know, I get phone calls. Oh, did you know so-and-so was sick? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, I already took them some food. Or I already sent them some flowers. Or, you know, I visited them. You know, it's not, it's not left to the pastor. It's not left to the elders to do that. It's the church, the role. We're, we're here to equip you to do the work of ministry. And it's such a blessing to be part of a church that's oriented in a biblical fashion that we don't have to try to figure out and reinvent what we do or how we do it. Well, the third point here is the church is important because it reveals Christ and his glory to a lost world. It reveals Christ and his glory to a lost world. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, Paul writes this, To me, the very least of saints, this grace was given. Paul didn't look at himself as he didn't strut around in fancy robes saying, Look at me, I'm the Apostle Paul. No, he didn't do that at all. He said, I'm the least of all saints. And if you know anything about the Bible, you understand why. I mean, because before he was converted, what was he doing? He was killing saints. <laughs> he was killing Christians. He was overseeing the death of, of believers as a religious Jewish leader. Not in a malicious way, I don't think. I don't think that he had malice in his heart toward these people. He just thought religiously he was doing the right thing. This Christianity thing is kind of challenging our Jewish beliefs, and they need to, he looked at them as kind of like a, a cult. They need to take care of them. And so he oversaw the death of Christians. And so when he came to faith in Christ, he, wow, God, he really understood what it meant when he said, this grace was given to me. And he says this, to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. In other words, you can't even count them. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, Paul really is up here in the rafters of heaven. The church is God's means of accomplishing God's eternal purpose here on earth. And his eternal purpose is to exalt Christ above 